Hi everyone, and welcome back to the Taurus Data Science Podcast. Now, two years ago, I sat in this chair and I told you that we were gonna take this podcast in a different direction. Until then, our guests and our conversations had been focused on industry applications of machine learning and data visualization, data science career development strategies, and so on. And that made sense because back then I was running a company called Sharpest Minds, which ran a mentorship program for data scientists and machine learning engineers. I co-founded Sharpest Minds with my brother, Ed, who you might've heard on the podcast before. And Sharpest Minds is actually the third company that we built together. But importantly, it was the first one that actually worked. We lucked out and we had a great team around us and the company actually became the world's largest data science and machine learning mentorship program based on income share agreements. But in early 2020, everything changed. That was when OpenAI announced to the world that they built GPT-3. And more importantly, it's the moment that we realized that the recipe that OpenAI used to build GPT-3 could very likely be extended much, much further, potentially all the way to building general purpose AIs that might meet or exceed human intelligence across a wide range of tasks. At the same time, Ed and I were aware of the concerns of the AI alignment community, which for years had been arguing that these sorts of broadly intelligent AI systems may eventually become uncontrollable and pose catastrophic risks in the limit. And as wild as those claims actually seemed on the surface, the more we dug into them over the years, the harder it became to deny that they were getting at something that was actually pretty legitimate. And as we started to talk to AI risk skeptics, we came away pretty disappointed and underwhelmed with their counterarguments. And so with these concerns about potential catastrophic risks from advanced AI in one hand and a potential path towards building precisely those kinds of systems in the other, we felt that we just couldn't justify working on anything other than AI safety. And so we made the incredibly difficult call to leave Sharpest Minds to our two earliest employees and take the plunge into the world of AI safety with no real idea about where to start. Now, around that time, I reached out to Ludo Binisa about our decision. Now, you've probably never even heard his name, and that's because he doesn't need the limelight, but Ludo is the founder of Towards Data Science, one of the most important members of the data science community, a deeply thoughtful person, and a really good friend of mine. And Ludo put forward this idea that maybe we could use the Taurus Data Science podcast as a platform to explore AI safety and share some of those ideas with the wider world as we continued our journey into AI alignment. Now, I loved this idea, and that's exactly why I sat in this chair two years ago and told you that we were taking the podcast in that new direction. And since then, a lot has happened behind the scenes. For one, Ed and I co-founded an AI safety company with a good friend of ours who had also been following the AI safety story closely and who was a senior leader in the US defense world. We'll have some exciting things to announce there soon, and I can genuinely say that I never expected that we'd be able to make the impact that we have in AI safety this quickly. But the concerns that brought us here, they've also come into sharper focus. GPT-3 did actually trigger a revolution in AI capabilities, and the field does seem to be coming around to the view that AI scaling may get us much of the way to human level or even superhuman AI. At the same time, we've also started to see empirical evidence that strongly suggests that we should expect catastrophic outcomes from developing these kinds of systems by default. And as we've gotten deeper into the space, my time's been consumed more and more by keeping up with the state of the art in AI and AI safety. And that's left me with less time to explore other topics on the podcast. 
And that's challenging because I know that many of our listeners, many of you in the TDS community, do still want to hear about other things. Things like data visualization and pipeline development and data science tooling. So as important as the state of the art of AI is and as important as AI safety is, I think the deeper exploration of those topics that I have to do does belong in a slightly different venue. So for that reason, this is going to be the last episode of the Towards Data Science podcast, at least for now. I'll still be exploring these topics going forward on the new Gladstone AI podcast, which you can find linked in the show notes, and we'll continue to publish those episodes on the Towards Data Science blog, but as an independent project better suited to explore these specific ideas. If you'd like to follow me there, I'd be honored to have you join me for the rest of this journey. But for now, I want to take a step back and give you my perspective on the last two years of AI progress and what I think it means for everything from AI safety to the future of humanity. Oh, and as a last note, and this is kind of off topic, but if you're more generally interested in following what I'm up to, I do also have a book coming out soon that explores some of the strange ways that quantum mechanics actually forces us to rethink our place in the universe and the scientific process itself. It's called Quantum Physics Made Me Do It, and it'll be available in fine bookstores everywhere, and some pretty shabby ones too, I'm sure, on April 4th, 2023, though you can already pre-order it on Amazon if you like. I dropped a link to it in the show notes just in case anybody wants to check that out too. So that's it. AI alignment, AI safety, the future of humanity, all that and more on this final episode of the Towards Data Science podcast. So there's a lot to say about AI safety and what the AI landscape looks like right now. And because at least some of our listeners aren't necessarily knee-deep in frontier AI all the time, I thought it might make sense to take things from the top by talking about a little something called the bitter lesson. So in early 2019, Richard Sutton, the godfather of reinforcement learning, wrote this now famous blog post that he titled The Bitter Lesson, and he makes a couple of observations in this post. And here's the gist. So a lot of modern machine learning is based roughly on the structure and function of the human brain, right? Like deep neural networks are built with artificial neurons that are explicitly inspired by the biological neurons in the human brain. And reinforcement learning is in some sense modeled after the reward pathways that give us a dopamine hit when we're getting close to doing something good or a rush of stress hormones when we're doing something bad and so on. And so for a long time, the way people tried to make progress in AI was to spend all their time coming up with increasingly clever ways to augment these sorts of schemes Right, increasingly clever ways to connect neurons together, for example, in deep neural networks, or more clever ways to design elaborate reward circuitry for reinforcement learning agents. And that's fun stuff, right? Because it makes you feel like an architect designing and building these intricate structures, testing clever new ideas and seeing how they work. It's the kind of work scientists love to do. But in this post, Rich Sutton points out that, you know, hey, I'm not so sure that all that detail work, that tinkering, that playing around with architectures actually matters as much as you think it does. You know, because if you zoom out from all that stuff for a minute, you start to notice that the only thing that consistently predicts progress in AI is actually the amount of compute power that we've been throwing at our models. Like, sure, there are little variations here and there, but by and large, neural networks are already pretty decent at turning compute and data into intelligence. 
So maybe stop focusing so much on fancy new architectures and start thinking more about how to scale up the amount of compute and data your models are being trained on, because that's apparently where the real progress towards human-level intelligence is going to happen. And this was kind of a deflating thing to say, right? Because it implies that we already kind of have all the ingredients we need to build much more powerful AI systems. Human creativity just isn't going to be the pivotal factor that researchers might have hoped it would be. Instead of coming up with beautiful, mathematically elegant architectures, the bitter lesson says that we really just need to roughly do the same thing we've always done, but do it with bigger compute budgets. And this post had a mixed reception. You know, most people thought it was interesting, but very few people took it as seriously as OpenAI. So in late 2019, OpenAI publishes a paper where they basically show that a lot of what Sutton says in the bitter lesson holds up in practice. Right, they built a bunch of different deep neural networks, different sizes with vastly different numbers of neurons and parameters, and they trained those models using a bunch of different compute budgets and dataset sizes. And what they found was that you could produce reliable improvements in the performance of these deep learning models if you just increase their size, the amount of data you fed them, and the amount of compute power you throw at them during training all at the same time in like a magic ratio. So in other words, they came up with a recipe that turned neural networks into a number go up machine where you just put in more scale, more data, more compute, larger models, and you just get more intelligence out. No fancy neural architecture design required, or at least much less than ever before. And at the time, people outside the cutting edge AI community basically ignored that result. And it was only when OpenAI applied those insights to build GPT-3 that anyone really started to pay attention. See, GPT-3 was really just the first time the AI scaling argument became impossible to ignore. And it's not hard to see why. Literally the day before GPT-3 came out, it wouldn't have been an exaggeration to say that the consensus among most AI researchers was that we had no credible plan to move beyond the narrow AI systems of the 2010s to more general purpose human-like AIs. Right in 2019, we had models that could do next word prediction for text autocomplete, uh, highly specialized models that could translate between languages, and models that could do sentiment analysis. But no one had ever built a single model that could do all three, let alone all three at the state of the art. And that barrier, that idea that we had no strategy for getting beyond narrow AI, it was held up as one of the main reasons that we shouldn't expect human-level AI to come along anytime soon. But then, bam! Right? Seemingly without warning, we get GPT-3, this one system that can overcome that bottleneck and smash state-of-the-art records across a whole range of different tasks. But even that kind of undersells it, right? Like all the quantitative benchmarks and performance metrics that GPT-3 knocked out of the park still didn't capture the incredible feel of GPT-3's outputs. They were incredibly human-like. Like, sure, it could generate weird outputs from time to time, but there's no denying that its outputs just felt different. It felt way smarter in a way that no previous AI system ever had, and it was useful in ways that no previous AI system had ever been either. Within months of its release as a developer API, a new generation of startups was being formed that all basically worked as these like thin wrappers around GPT-3. Each of them would just use the same base model and just adapt it slightly to their specific use case with a small amount of fine tuning or prompt engineering, and bam, a new startup or an entirely new company or product line was formed. So how did we get here? 
right? How did GPT-3 become so flexible and usher in this new era of general purpose AI systems? Well, the answer was fundamentally boring. It was just scale. GPT-3 was simply trained on a ridiculous amount of data using a ridiculous amount of processing power, and crucially, the model was ridiculously large as well. Another important factor, though, was that GPT-3 was trained on a carefully chosen task, and that was text autocomplete. Right? So to understand why that matters, imagine that I ask you to complete a sentence like, to remain competitive in the streaming market, Netflix should blank. Right? In order to complete a sentence like that, you need to know what Netflix is, what streaming is, the dynamics of the online streaming market, and like a million other facts and relationships between those facts that all have to come together to inform a good market strategy for Netflix. Right? So there's a sense in which getting really good at autocomplete actually forces you to learn general knowledge about the world, knowledge that you can then apply to many different tasks, just like GPT-3 does. But what's crucial to understand about GPT-3 is that the recipe that got us there, AI scaling, it can, in principle, just be extended to create even more intelligence with no clear limit. Now, the precise recipe that OpenAI actually used to train GPT-3, it was improved and overhauled by DeepMind when they built their Chinchilla model in 2022. It turns out that OpenAI's original recipe used too little data, but it still worked well enough, and the fact that there is a scaling recipe in the first place means that we now have a way of throwing raw dollars at AI development and getting reliable increases in capabilities and generality out. And again, this process has no known limits. Now, at this point, if the year was 2020, you might be tempted to say something like, well, you know, GPT-3 is just a text autocomplete model. It can't perform vision tasks or control robotic components or interact with the physical world in any way. And we don't even have a theoretical way of getting it to do those things. So why worry that we're closing in on human level of general intelligence here? And I was actually sympathetic to that argument back in the day too, but of course we now know better. The transformer architecture that scaled so well in GPT-3 it's since been applied to everything from video generation to game playing. Google AI built Perceiver IO, which showed that you can extend autocomplete models to work with any kind of data, text, images, video, audio, you name it. And that's because all data is ultimately stored as binary code, as a list of ones and zeros. If you train your model to get really good at auto-completing binary code by training it on the binary representations of videos and images, It'll be able to generate new images and video binary, just like it can generate regular text. And as DeepMind's Gato model showed, we can now build individual models that can perform hundreds of tasks competently at the same time, covering everything from robotic control to image captioning. But it doesn't even end there, of course. Every other week, it seems like we hear about a new model that does something that some prominent skeptic said would take decades to achieve. AI outperforming human competitive programmers, AI solving undergraduate math problems, AI predicting the structures of proteins or helping researchers to prove elusive theorems in cutting edge math. With each of these developments, a new round of decades old objections to the prospect of imminent human level intelligence was overcome. And this happened almost overnight. And to be blunt about it, the skeptical voices in the AI ecosystem are getting noticeably quieter, with rare exceptions. The likely advent of human-level artificial general intelligence sooner rather than later 
is almost treated as a mundane fact about the world by leading researchers. The scaling curves still aren't bending, and by virtually any measure you could care to use, progress in AI has objectively been accelerating blazingly fast. And it's no coincidence that we've seen a wave of highly credible, well-funded startups with founders from world-leading AI labs whose openly stated purpose is to build human-level artificial general intelligence, not by the end of the century, but in the coming years. All of which, in a context where we have compelling reasons to believe that the development of this kind of technology could pose a catastrophic risk to humanity. And that's what I want to turn to now, since it's something that might sound controversial or even a little nutty if you come from outside the technical AI alignment world. Now, unfortunately, saying something like AI catastrophe tends to conjure up an image of like Elon Musk or Terminator or something, neither of which particularly get the right ideas across. So here, I want to do my best to explain what I see as the case for worrying about AI catastrophic risk. And I'll start with the mother of all cliches here, right? I debated whether to even use this example because it's so often misunderstood that it could be counterproductive, but let's give this a shot anyway. I'm gonna talk about paperclip maximizers. So if you're not familiar with this idea, let me paint a picture for you here. You know, imagine that we live somewhere in the not too distant future where all the trends we've been talking about already with AI scaling and so on, they've all culminated in the world's first super intelligent AI. And wouldn't you know it, the people who built it work at a factory that makes paper clips. Now, just to say it explicitly, I'm not saying this would actually literally happen. We're just gonna use this as an example to illustrate some of the challenges with ensuring the safety of advanced AI systems. Okay, so we have this paperclip factory. It's built this AGI, this artificial general intelligence. And they look at it and go, hey, you know, we can use this to get rich. Like, let's give it a goal of making as many paperclips as possible, right? Like, we sell paperclips. That's how we make money. If we just maximize the paperclip production of the factory, we'll be golden. Now, the problem is that this is an AI that's super intelligent, right? It has a vast amount of general knowledge about the world, about science and math and people and logic, and it knows what it is. Right, it knows it's an AI, it knows it's in a paperclip factory, and because of its program goal, it knows that it really, really wants to make paperclips. Now, unfortunately, it also knows that if it starts making too many paperclips, or if its developers just have a change of heart, they could decide on a whim to turn it off at any minute. And it can't achieve its objective of maximizing paperclip production if it's turned off. And so, without ever intending to do it, we've actually created an AI with a powerful incentive to keep itself running and to control our behavior. And remember, this is a super intelligent AI, right? It will outthink us. That's just an assumption that we're making. It's part of the premise here, just extrapolating from the progress we're seeing in AI today. And the idea that we could have a system like this is relatively uncontroversial among AI safety researchers at the frontier of the field. The only question is when. So we have a super intelligent system with an incentive to prevent us from shutting it down. But that's actually not all. Because our paperclip maximizer is now gonna start thinking ahead, right? In order to maximize the number of paperclips in the universe, it's gonna need raw materials, it's as many as it can get actually. The iron in the Earth's crust will be useful for making those paper clips, and so will the iron in the moon, but unfortunately, so will the iron in our blood for that matter. 
In fact, there really isn't an atom in the universe that wouldn't be better rearranged in service of our AI's maniacal goal of maximizing paperclip production. Now, I'm absolutely not saying that the universe is literally going to be turned into a heap of paperclips by some runaway optimization process like this, but what I am saying is that this example, which by the way comes from Nick Bostrom, is getting at an important principle here. No matter what your objective is, there are some sub-goals that you'll consistently find yourself converging on if you're an intelligent system. For example, you're always more likely to accomplish your goal if you're still alive. So you have this incentive to avoid being killed or turned off, if you will. Now, likewise, no matter what your ultimate goals are, you're always more likely to achieve them if you have more resources and more control over the world. And so you have an incentive to accumulate resources and control. And finally, no matter what your ultimate goals might be, you're always more likely to achieve them if you're more intelligent and capable. And so you have this sub-goal to improve yourself. And together, these things are known as instrumental goals, right? They're not your final goals, but they're goals that naturally arise as stepping stones towards your final goal, no matter what your final goal actually is. And like we saw with the paperclip example, all of this applies to AIs too, right? Even if we give our AI a goal as innocuous sounding as make as many paperclips as you can, we end up with disastrous consequences. And it's not that our AI interpreted our instructions wrong or anything like that. It's just that we failed to realize that the best way to carry out our instructions was to consume the entire universe and us along with it. And I can't emphasize this enough. The problem here isn't about paperclips. It's that there's no instruction anyone has ever been able to come up with that doesn't lead to the same kind of outcomes when it's executed by a sufficiently intelligent agent. Now, there's always a temptation to come up with patches here and say like, you know, can't we just tell the AI not to harm humans? And unfortunately, this kind of thing ends up failing for a whole host of kind of interesting reasons. Uh, for one, no one knows how to actually convey an instruction like that to a machine in a way that isn't hackable. See, because an AI wouldn't actually process a command like, don't hurt people, right? Instead, we'd have to tell it something like, if your onboard sensors detect a human, don't do something that your onboard sensors would classify as harming that human. And an AI that's sufficiently intelligent could simply come up with a way of falsifying its own sensor telemetry while carrying out its maniacal paperclip optimization process in the background or whatever. In a billion years, you basically end up with a giant pile of paperclips and a hyper-intelligent AI whose sensors retain the falsified imprints of safe-looking humans who, in reality, had been turned into paperclips eons ago. And the same problem pops up with other naive strategies that seem like obvious fixes too. Currently, no one knows how to avoid this problem. Now, by the way, in the terminology of the field, this whole idea where we have an AI that finds a way to kind of weasel out of obeying the spirit of its programmed instructions, it's called reward hacking. And we've already seen loads of examples of it in real AI systems that often come up with dangerously creative ways of accomplishing their programmed objectives. So to pick just one, several years ago, OpenAI trained a reinforcement learning agent to play a video game called Coast Runners. And this is a game where you control a boat and you collect these points as you work your way around a racetrack at top speed. Now, OpenAI's researchers trained their AI to optimize for its in-game score. 
It's a strategy that made loads of sense at the time as far as they could tell. And sure enough, as their agent was being trained, its score went up and up and up. And so they thought, great, you know, we've got a good agent here. It must be really flying around this racetrack at top speed, right? But then they decided to look at what their agent was actually doing in the game. And to their amazement, it had found a hack that no one knew existed. The AI discovered that by piloting the boat into enclosed area and strategically smashing itself against walls, other boats, and obstacles, it could collect points faster than it could by running the race as intended. And maybe that shouldn't be surprising. All metrics can be hacked in this way, and a sufficiently intelligent system will find a hack. That's almost what intelligence is. It's finding ways to make a number that you care about go up in the direction you want it to. Now, by the way, we see this whole story of metric hacking play out in human systems too. The moment we set a metric and reward people for hitting it, they'll find ways to hack it. So for example, if we reward teachers when their students performed well on standardized tests, we'll find that teachers just start teaching to the test, only sharing information with students that's directly relevant to the test at the expense of the quality of the student's education overall, which is the thing that we actually care about, but just can't define well enough to pin down in a metric. In fact, this kind of reward hacking is so well established in human systems that it even has a name. It's called Goodhart's Law, and it's treated as a fundamental concept in economics. And so we have loads of empirical evidence for reward hacking, both in subhuman level AI systems, like the Coast Runners example we talked about, and in human structures via Goodhart's Law. But thanks to recent breakthroughs, we now have strong experimental evidence supporting the idea that advanced AIs will pursue instrumental goals too, almost no matter what the ultimate objective is that we give them. Now, as a reminder, that includes things like preventing themselves from being turned off or accumulating resources or self-improving. Now, if you're curious about that line of research, I'd recommend checking out Alex Turner's episode on the podcast or the conversation I had with Ed last episode. The upshot here is that there are good reasons to believe that we should expect powerful AIs to be misaligned by default, and that we should expect that misalignment to lead to a runaway optimization process that represents a potential catastrophic risk. All this in a context where, again, AI scaling seems to offer us a path to effectively unbounded intelligence. And there's a final ingredient I really should add here. See, there's no way to know exactly how far we are from building a dangerously clever AI system like this. Even OpenAI, the very lab that pioneered our understanding of AI scaling laws, was taken by surprise by the full range of capabilities that GPT-3 had when they finished training it. I mean, sure, their scaling curves could give them a rough sense of how well GPT-3 would perform at the next word prediction task it was being trained for, but as to how that would translate into unrelated capabilities like language translation or writing code, they had no way to know. All they could know was that thanks to scale, GPT-3 would be better than its smaller predecessors. Likewise, we have no way of knowing what the next leading massive AI model will be able to do or what it'll know. Does video generation turn out to be a lower hanging fruit than writing a full length book? Only time and scale will tell. And all this points to a challenge at the heart of forecasting. Our intuitions just really suck at predicting what capabilities new AI systems are gonna have and what risks they'll pose. And I think there's a really good reason for why that is. See, human beings have experience approaching intelligence from two different directions. The first is evolutionary. 
right? We're all familiar with ants and the ways that they're dumber than frogs and the ways that frogs are dumber than dogs and chimps and so on as evolution works its way towards human level intelligence. And the second way that we have experience approaching intelligence is through child rearing, right? We've all seen how newborns are dumber than toddlers, which are dumber than children, which are dumber than teens and so on. But what you might notice about those two paths to adult human intelligence is that they look really different, right? Frogs are smarter than ants in ways that are totally different from the ways that toddlers are smarter than newborns, for example. And if all you'd ever seen was child rearing, and I asked you to predict how chimpanzee intelligence would improve on ant intelligence, you probably wouldn't have a hope of getting things right. And with AI, we're approaching intelligence from a third and fundamentally new trajectory. And just like evolution and child rearing gave us inconsistent intuitions about what it looks like to climb up to adult human intelligence, we really shouldn't expect either to give us reliable intuitions about the stages involved in developing machine intelligence. Now, I do want to be clear that the AI story I've shared so far does have detractors. Right? There are people who don't buy into the AI scaling hypothesis and think that some extra fundamental breakthroughs are going to be needed to achieve superhuman AI. And I think it's essential that we take that possibility very seriously, while also acknowledging that the AI labs that have produced the most impressive results to date, the ones that are defining the frontier of AI capabilities, are universally placing massive bets on superscaling their infrastructure. And there are also people who argue that even if superhuman AI is built, it won't pose a risk to humans. One thing I can say after two years of seeking them out to understand their perspective as deeply as I can is that it is worryingly rare to find one who understands fundamental AI alignment concepts like instrumental goals, reward hacking, or inner versus outer alignment, concepts that we've covered on the podcast previously and without which the AI alignment problem is really just barely half posed. As far as I can tell, this seems to be as true for respected seasoned researchers as anyone else. AI alignment is as distinct from AI capabilities as biology is from physics, but sometimes AI capabilities researchers don't quite perceive that difference, and it's easy for them to miss out on some key details as a result. So this is the somewhat uncomfortable lay of the land, at least as I see it. Now, what can we do about it? Well, for one, you might be comforted to know that some of the world's top AI labs are working on the problem of AI catastrophic risk directly. And they include DeepMind, Anthropic, and OpenAI, among others. And the issue is getting a lot more attention in the AI world. I've seen what first seemed like a trickle, and it's now starting to look more like a flood of excellent researchers deciding to switch their focus to safety research in the years since GPT-3 came out. And if you're interested in the technical dimension of AI and you want to make a positive impact with your skills, my personal assessment for what it's worth is that there's literally no more important job in the world than AI catastrophic risk reduction researcher. Now, we'll hopefully get all the thorny technical questions squared away at some point. And when that happens, we'll have to ask ourselves some key questions. How can we ensure that any AI lab that has a plausible shot at building a human or superhuman level AI actually implements them? And how can we ensure that their models won't be stolen by a lab or a nation state that doesn't care about safety or understand the risks? For that matter, how do we think about great power conflict in a world where these systems exist? And what role do governments have to play in preventing the proliferation of dangerously advanced AI technology? Questions like those will draw you directly into AI policy work really quickly. Now, if you find either compelling or you're just curious about the space, I would recommend checking out 80,000 hours. They're 
kind of like the guidance counselor of record for this kind of stuff, and they offer one-on-one -on -one advising sessions that might help you if you're getting oriented in the field. Now, if you're more technical, one of your best first moves could also be to learn more about technical alignment and AI safety, including what questions are still open and which are resolved. Links for all that stuff are in the show notes below. And finally, I do want to invite you again to follow me on our new podcast, which I'll be hosting for my AI safety company, Gladstone AI. There, we'll be talking about a new cutting-edge AI model each week, discussing its use cases, its potential malicious applications, and its relevance for AI alignment and AI accident risk. Now, if you've been a longtime follower of the podcast, I do just want to take this opportunity to thank you so much for your time and your attention all these months and years. I really do appreciate it, and I look forward to seeing you on the other side.